Hello, welcome to Ordinary People. Uh, we're back again with Andrew. Say hello, Andrew. Hello, Andrew. He's still there. And Neil. Hi, Paul. Um, and Neil is going to introduce our guest, Mr. Mark Knox. So, Neil, do you want yeah. to there? Thanks, guys. Good to be back on with you, Paul and Andrew. And uh, this is uh, this is our first returnee, and who better, no better man to have returning back for the second series than a really good friend of ours, Mark Knox. Um, so, Mark, just I don't need to say a big pile. I'd just love to hand over to you just to introduce yourself. Tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, I will tell me if I've talked for too long, because um, talking about myself is my favourite thing. We all, we all tend to be modest, but uh, all that false modesty means all the facts about ourselves build up. And we can't wait for a moment like this. Um, so, uh, yeah, I am Mark. Um, I live in uh, Kurgavan. This is my house. These are my magazines from the olden days that I collect because I'm a bit weird. Um, uh, I, uh, I work for Aspire NI when we work in schools. We're in, I think we work in 13 schools. I just threw that number out all the time. Could be wrong. Could be 14. Could be 12. Um, but we work in schools all over Lurgan, Port Atlantic, or Gavin, um, providing free educational support for young people who are from low-income backgrounds. So we provide them with um, homework clubs, free tuition. That's kind of the education side. We also run a camp where they get to explore... Um, Sorry, folders just come up, tell me something. There you go. Uh, they get to explore faith um, and sort of their cross-community stuff. And we also run an academy where they can learn skills in a mixture of things from business, barista, training, to skateboarding. So that's my job, mainly with young people. Um, I We were chatting before about how old we all are. I can't believe uh, we're all over 25. Um, but... Uh, I know I, I may be young, I'm only 30, but being with the young people all the time makes me feel really old um, and under pressure all the time to keep up with them. But that's what I do as a job. And then I'm part of the leadership of Cara, Curry which is a small church plant. Um, don't know why we always say that it's small. Like, that that? Um, it's a church plant um, in um, Curry Obviously, that's in the name. That's, that was there in case we got lost. And uh, we uh, have been... And we've been there for maybe three, four years. I don't know. I lose track of time. But uh, we were planted from Emmanuel, part of the bar network. And uh, that's a lot of fun. And I'm married to Heather. There you go. She's not here right now. Um, and we are expecting a child in July. Yes. So the awesome. due date is the 23rd. My birthday is 24th. Oh, really? I come see my, uh, my thunder. Congratulations again. Well done. Congratulations and so much. I uh, I think that's why I'm looking forward to. We don't really know where the conversation is going to go, but um, hearing you talk about Aspire and Cara, there's always part of me just wants to congratulate you on that too, because I think it's incredible what you've what you've done, what you've pioneered, and uh, and what you're continuing to push into. So, um, so honestly, just really grateful for your time this evening, Mark, and um. Yeah, I think just just whatever you're talking about, Cara being a, a a small church. Why do we always say that? I I I do that too. So as you know, uh, we're part of Grace Community Church, and I think it's maybe the it's maybe to uh, set good expect or healthy expectations or something for people. Like if you start the conversation off by saying we're a small church in Rich Hill, because you all I always know what the next question is going to be. How many people go to your church? 
You know, so if you sort of start with the expectations pretty low, you don't feel as bad whenever people sort of look at you and go, only only 40 or 50? What's wrong with you guys? Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. It's weird um, because, like, so some of my heroes in, like, uh, in, in the faith anyway are, uh, so, like, Pete Portal, who's, like, a uh, big part of 24 7 moving over to South Africa and he's part of Tree of Life. You should look them up. They're all on the socials. I've only recently started putting stuff on social media um, a bit more. But Tree of Life and Pete and those guys are my heroes. read his book. But their church is in the whole pile bigger than Cara. Or Shane Claiborne. I'm sure a lot of people know who Shane Claiborne is. Read the books. Shane Claiborne works in a street. Um, and I always think because Cara hasn't transformed all of Kirkavon, Lurgan, Portadown and Kirkavon, thousands, thousands of people, we're not doing the Shane Claiborne stuff. But he works with a street, um, very small numbers. Um, so it's funny that a lot of our heroes um, work in small churches with a little group of people, but then we can be embarrassed about ourselves. Interesting. Um, yeah, so tell us a wee bit about, uh, tell us a wee bit about what lockdown's been like for you, as just as a, just for yourself, what, like what's been the highs and lows of lockdown? And then if you want to maybe touch on how that's impacted then Aspire and Cara and the things that you're involved in? Yeah. So for me, it's like me and Heather, my wife, are all saying like we miss we miss our families um, and we miss seeing our friends and everything else. But we're also very fortunate that we we really like each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> we don't often actually get to spend a, a lot of time together. Um, yeah. We don't often get to um, watch a lot of TV. And uh, you're always kind of taught that watching TV and listening to music and watching films and sport all day is a bad thing. But we didn't really get to do as much as all as I like. And I really like TV and I really like films and I, I really like these things. And um, it's been really nice to go all those TV series that we've thought of and talked about, everyone talks about, let's watch them, all those movies, let's watch them. And we've spent a little bit of time doing that, talking with each other, hanging out. And uh, I've really enjoyed that side of things. Sometimes you get really down about not seeing family. Um, but on the whole, like we have a house, we have food in the cupboards, we have all the on-demand services <laughs> on our TV. Um, and it's been enjoyable being being in the house and being with Heather. Um, so that side of things has been good. Um, I suppose though, I really miss church. Um, but I was talking about this last week with the guys, the car, and I was thinking, that's really good. Because for a long while during lockdown, I was feeling like not really fulfilled in my faith. Like I wasn't really doing all the stuff or whatever. I felt some sort of disconnect and I was praying that God would fix this. And then I kind of stumbled last, like, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, it was like, obviously you feel like this. Like the church is described as a family. God is a father and he wants us to be a family. So if you're disconnected from your family, you're going to feel a disconnect. And that's a good thing because actually if I felt really fulfilled in my walk with God sitting in my house on my own, why on earth would I go mm. back to church? Like it's a real hassle to turn up, to sing songs, to be friends with people who are a bit weird, to go on the streets <laughs> and stuff. Like if I could be fully fulfilled sitting in my couch, that's what I would do. So um, I know that's the discouragement that things can't be okay. I basically feel like a car running three wheels because mm. I'm still praying and reading and like talking to friends. But when you're missing that fourth wheel, yeah. it's not meant to be okay. So I felt that. I know others, Akara, have felt that. Um, we're very close. Akara, one of our favorite things to do is one Sunday a month, we don't do um, 
preaching or anything, we have a meal and we like the meal started off. There's like 10 of us, like Cara is small, but the last meal we did, there's maybe 40, 50 people there. So we were building a good thing and it hasn't happened in a year. That was last February. So that's been hard. Um, and then on for Aspire, we work in schools. So schools were closed for months. We were on furlough. Um, I sat in this exact seat wearing shorts every day, getting really fat and not noticing until furlough ended and I couldn't fit into my jeans. <laughs> um, but for Aspire, it was really hard not being with the young people. Um, really, really hard. I'm watching some people really struggle not getting work done online. For some of them, we've helped them catch up this year. But for one of them, at least, that meant they got no GCSEs. GCSEs, don't know why I pronounced that there. They got no GCSEs because they didn't have the internet to hand stuff in. And like that was gotten. Um, it was good to get back into September. So at the minute, schools are closed. But actually, for me, I'm in Brownlow, in Craven, three times a week with the vulnerable young people. So I'm in. Um, and I'm not even helping them do homework. I'm just chatting, which is really nice because... If you're in school all day, you're in with like six other young people on a computer all day long. It can be so destroying for some of the kids. So they've got us in for um, human contact, really. So we just bring in Crisps and Capri Sun and ask them what their favourite movie is and have a bit of a chat. So that's kind of how it was affecting us. It swings and roundabouts there. Yeah, yeah. So while, while you're on Aspire, we'll come back to Cara, but while you're on Aspire, I know you've already touched on it uh, as part of your introduction um, but I do think it's worth maybe just spending a wee bit more time, like uh, unpack a wee bit more about what that looks like, a wee bit more about what your team, what it actually looks like day to day. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. So um, Aspire, Aspire began, it's actually began five years ago this year, which is not. Um, so I had, um, I trained to be a common teacher. I didn't want to become a teacher. That's all by the by. Um, but I thought it'd be a bit of crack. But while I was doing the um, training, there was a class about the um, educational attainment gap, which at the time I hadn't really heard about. Now it's kind of unavoidable, right? It's been on the news loads around free school meals. So um, young people who are on free school meals are basically way less likely to achieve their GCSEs, not because their free school meals are particularly delicious, but because free school meals is given out on a um, socioeconomic basis. So if you're from a low-income background, you're less likely to achieve because you can't um, afford extra tuition, because books and stuff aren't as readily available, because um, like for loads and loads of reasons. I can't really explain all the reasons, but the only thing I will say is it's not the parents' fault. <laughs> um, that's like yeah. a a thing that's like spun all the time. Yeah. Like I've met most of the parents that we work with, they're involved and they want to help the young people. 75% of young people who are on free school means have at least one parent in work. Their families aren't lazy. Um, Good. And a high proportion of the young people we work with have at least one parent who's um, passed away, which is, is crazy, which would leave you um, on the free school means. So we, um, I learned about the education attainment gap, trying to see where people missing out we started um, five years ago, so we thought we'd do homework clubs and provide free tuition. So the church, this is mad, um, so 45% of adults in the UK have university-level education. 80% of Christians in the UK have university-level education, which means we weren't on free <laughs> So the church is very middle class, um, which people always said as a criticism, and it can be, that's another chat for another time but I'm saying it as that's a resource for these young people and um, need help. So we have a resource and also then the church has found a missing people group. If 80% of this has been the uni, that means there's a lot of um, lower income young people who aren't at church. So um, we started doing homework clubs in one school 
um, like two afternoons a week and then some nice Christian people come in and provided them with free tuition. That then grew to, um, for, so then we then added like, so then Maddie Turner started working for us in another two schools. I was doing two schools, he was doing two, Andrew McGuire, um, then Megan Collins and then Vicky started doing primary schools um, and then Ryan Emerson's our latest um, staff member, imagine I left one out. Um, and uh, so it grew and grew and grew, but with everyone who came along came more skills. So we went beyond just the uh, the homework clubs and we started running a camp because we um, we're not really going, can I help you with your geography? And also, do you know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Because that's a bit weird. So we, we started running a camp program that's allowed young people an opportunity to explore faith. Um, it's not overly like evangelistic where we're going like, come and become a Christian but actually we're allowing these young people a lot of them who haven't really explored faith and tradition for the first time to go am I a Protestant am I a Catholic what does that mean do I believe in God why do I not believe in God if I don't believe in God and they don't believe in God we're not Protestants and Catholics we're unionist and nationalist am I unionist am I nationalist so we have all these conversations and actually um, a, a lot of young people have ended up coming to faith through this camp and um, no, we've never done a sermon or like an altar call. We set up a prayer room. They set up a prayer room. So we go, right, we've now discussed faith and tradition. Some of you believe, some of you don't believe. Some of you are Protestants, some of you are Catholics. Some of you have brought up Anglican, some of you have brought up Catholic. You need to create a prayer space that you can all use and we're going to give it a go. We almost do it like it's an experiment. And then every time people sit in silence and it's one of the first times to sit there with all their thoughts and with God. And every year people have gives their, give their lives to Jesus. So that was this. We had this, the schools. We were doing homework club, free tuition, and then the camp. And then um, we then started an academy, um, which has been really slow starting because of lockdown on and off. But um, Andrew's in charge of that guy, like Body from Snow Patrol. He funded that, which was mad. Um, he gave us 10, 10 grand for it. So um, the academy then, we were thinking, it's really good for young people to be able to get their homework and all done. But how do we give them the... We don't just want these young people to have a like survive school. We were like, as Christians, we want to go over and above and give them the best time ever at school. So we we're like, what else would you like? And we we're like, we'd like to learn skills. So imagine they could uh, go to the business academy and set up their own business at 14 and make money now. Like, imagine they could go and learn. And like, art is one of those things that, like, you don't think about. Like, actually having even, I don't know what you need for art, computers, cameras, pencils, crayons, I don't know, whatever you use, even having all those things, like we can provide all that um, and let people express themselves. I do the skateboarding one, which is good fun. Um, but we buy skateboards for them, but oh. I get a skateboard for free. That's the reason I do it. So I grew to that. Sorry, so then in the end, sorry, I was just uh, talking too long there. So now we have a homework club, free tuition, and then we if you want, so you have to do that if you're on a spar, and then you're allowed the opportunity to come to the camp and to take part in the academy program, and that is all we do. Did that academy start during lockdown? I didn't know. I didn't know about the academy just before. So it okay. started in January, last January. We got through. So I think I went skateboarding twice. The business one met two or three times. Okay. And it stopped, and then we were actually meant to spend all the money, and um, before Christmas, but obviously then we couldn't. So then we rang them, and we have all of this year now to spend the money. Oh, as soon as we lifted, we're okay. uh, we're going for it again. And is that like do you bring all is that when all the schools that you're working with come together? Yeah. So um each academy there's like you can we only allow ten people to go to each one. So you have to okay. be one to sign up. Um, okay. and they're from all of the schools coming together. So that's when they start building relationships as well and meeting each other. 
Right. So, okay. And you like so are you so you're actually fighting then like Protestant Catholics or Unionist Nationalists, whatever, coming together in those spaces? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, most of them we see even if you do the like so for the cross community stuff, you've forms to fill in and the forms are so foreign to them. Like so you categorize people as CNR, which is Catholic Catholic Nationalist Republican and PUL, Protestant Unionist Loyalist. And the amount of people who are theologically Protestant but would rather live in the United Ireland. So what are you? <laughs> That's not a thing. And then like it's just funny to hear young people able to pull apart ideas that we think are normal where they go, so your beliefs on communion affect your beliefs on international borders. What? And then and you're going, yeah, I know that is silly, isn't it? Um, uh, or um, a lot of the uh, um, young people who are uh, like Eastern Europeans. So it depends where they moved. So we have a girl who um, was uh, goes to is, is a Catholic girl, and she had to pick an emblem that she. Um, so we do a thing where it's different emblems like flags and GAA and Northern Ireland football. Which one do you identify with? So she's just picked I'm a Catholic, and she picks the Union flag. We said why? Because it flies in my estate, because it's Eastern European. So just move to wherever they moved. Um, it's mad, but it's really really interesting. I imagine it must be so interesting because like. I think even from a probably from a church perspective more than anything, you like you end up just being in the same sort of bubble, don't you? You never you're never really exposed to those conversations in the way that would really stretch your thinking and really help what like maybe listen into what's going on in our communities and amongst our young people. And it just sounds like you're having uh creating that space where you're entering into that. Yeah, it's good for them because most of them have never thought about it. Yeah, for, yeah. Very good. Um, just as you were talking there, Mark, I thought the thing was really, really important, actually, that you, that you mentioned that, because I think we can so often rush to blaming the parents. And that's what's been really, it's been really horrible watching some of the stuff on social media with all the, with all the stuff that Marcus Rashford's been involved in and seeing people's response to that completely ignorant and horrible towards the parents of these kids. I was I was actually flicking through Twitter this afternoon and um there was a tweet that got a bit of attention and it was um from a from a girl that she thinks she's in Queens, don't know if she's a lecturer in Queens or what, but she said she popped uh popped some things around for a school mum pal this morning. And while she was there she realised that people are having to choose between food and ink to print off their schoolwork. And so here's a mum that's really wanting to feed her kids and she's really wanting to put her children through education, but actually she's faced with having to choose between feeding herself lunch or buying ink cartridges so she can print off her children's schoolwork. And it was all like it's awful to read that. I suppose the good thing was about that tweet was that about an hour later the same girl posted that somebody had come across so a random person had come across that tweet and had sent a real generous amount of money for that family to be able to, to get enough ink and food for an indefinite period of time, which is good. So um, I, I imagine you're, you're familiar with stories like that. Yeah, yeah, um, like all the time. Uh, like the, the, the saddest one for me, it was just like, not just because it's a sad story, so it's a good story, but it just... There was a young person who had to do homework one day and they had to listen to two so two versions of the same song, right? A cover version and another version and compare them. And I said, we'll do that one when we get home on YouTube. And the young person was like, oh, 
we don't have the internet. And I was like, oh, I never thought about that. And I was sitting there feeling a bit sorry for this young person. And they don't have the internet. That's really sad. I will go home and think about that. And about 10 minutes later, um, they were leaving. And I bring in a wee, before COVID, we used to make them teas and coffee. Now we bring them in a Capri Sun. And I had a wee milk um, that we had been using. And he said, what are you going to do with that milk? And I said, I'll probably just throw it out. Because it was a Thursday. I was like, it would be no good for next Tuesday. And he said, mommy, um, mommy doesn't get any money again the next Tuesday. Can I bring that milk home? And I gave him the milk home. And you thought I gave him 50 quid. He went skipping up the road. And lovely, lovely fella lives in our town. Uh, and that's the reality. And it's not. And his mum's not lazy. <laughs> she, his mum's mom, actually not well. I'm not able to work. Um, but yeah, then you, you, I always meet, I meet people quite often as well who believe lazy lies about it's the parents' fault or well, why don't their parents go out and get a job or this and the other. Um, and as if it's really, really easy. But I was actually thinking, whenever lockdown came, we, how over the moon was my staff team when the furlough scheme was announced on TV? Because for the first time ever, I knew what it was like to not be able to work through a situation that was completely outside of my control. I was relying on the government to do something about it, as were millions of us. And we've took advantage of that, not because we're lazy, not because we couldn't be find a way around, but because of a situation outside of our control, we couldn't get to work. And you cannot get a job working in a drive-through without five GCSEs. So people always, and people always say, why don't they just get a job in Tesco's? Tesco's one of the hardest places just to go and get a job in. But um, you need five GCSEs for these, and, and they're, they're not easy to get without all the help and support that other people have. Yeah. Thanks for that, Mark. I think it's really important. Um, and, and I suppose just sticking there for another wee minute, I, I, I suppose I'm asking to speculate because I, don't, I suppose we don't know, but like what... Like, what are your thoughts? Like, what do you think this is going to be like whenever this lifts? Have you any expectations, like, working with young people, what what this could be like for you guys in Aspire as uh, as, as we all, as kids, head back to school? Yeah. So everything's going to get worse with poverty due to COVID, right? But in some ways, <laughs> the, the, um, the government get... Uh, an easy pass because of COVID, right? But as of two years ago, 2021 was always predicted to be a record level of child poverty never seen before. So whenever you hear child poverty stats, don't give the government the Bible because COVID came along. It was always headed this way. It might actually be even worse, which is awful, but it was always headed this way. Um, the I'm... Um, not you know I'm from Northern Ireland. I'm not like gonna particularly swing for a Labour or Conservative here, but to compare governments, right? This industry shows things can happen, and I know there was financial crisis and everything else. But in '98, um, the government um made a, a a child poverty act. They were like, we're gonna get rid of child poverty by 2020, right? And you go, well, that was silly. It never happened. Governments always let people down. Well. By 2001, they'd reduced it by a quarter. Child poverty had reduced by a quarter. They were on target for uh, things to go well. And um, by 2005, it had kind of reached a bit of a stalemate, and then it began to go up and down a little bit by 2009. Um, but what happened was, so I thought I invented a spare. 
in Premier League football grounds all over the UK, young people would go and newly qualified teachers would do their homework with them. Share Start was started for the first time. The minimum wage was introduced. Um, money was poured out into services looking after people from low-income backgrounds. So it actually got better. Like poverty was like was reaching a, a child poverty was was reaching a low, and then from two thousand and nine onwards, when like it is isn't really a coincidence that the government changed from two thousand and nine onwards, poverty's got worse year on year until it's going to reach record levels worse than whatever the act was introduced. And the act was got rid of a couple of years ago. Share Start hasn't received any new funding since 2009 and a massive portion of the centres have closed down. That schools programme in the Premier League clubs that then ended up in rugby clubs and hockey clubs has, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. And child poverty was not mentioned. And so I can blame the government, but I can't because in the Conservative manifesto, child poverty wasn't mentioned. They never said they were going to end about it. So how, how can you hold them to account? And so, 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 so on the ground, like how do you, how do you think that's going to play out for you? How do you, like what's your expectations then as a as somebody leading a work amongst young people within that sort of that educational attainment gap? Yeah, so I think we have we have to be hopeful mm-hmm. even when there's no hope. Um, it's a that's the thing I wrote about in our in our newsletter recently was this idea of hopeful naivety. Yeah. So. We are we we got all this funding from this thing called the Pressure Group Fund. Makes us sound like we're hippies. We're going to chain ourselves to trees, but um, to create this thing called Stop Poverty Now, right? And all we're looking the government to do is to make us a promise to come up with a plan, and they, if they can do their end and fulfil it or not fulfil it, we're just going to keep working with the individual young people and try and make a difference. Um, that. The main thing is, as well, I can get really focused on the government and go and they can wish they would do something about it. But remember, 80% of progressive university education. So um, we can't help everybody right now. We can't fix everything right now. But we have the scope to help these young people to get an education far more than aspire to. We have, the, we have the GCSEs, we have the degrees, we have the qualifications, we have the space, we have the centres, we have everything we need. Um, so in one way, we can't even just blame systems and everything else. But I do have just a, a really naive hope that I knew was naive, um, that things can, can get better. That although we've seen lots of division in 2020 and 2021, if you go on social media, right, you're seeing a division. But actually, a lot of people want to work together. A lot of people are reaching out and asking people, are they okay? What you see in social media isn't real. The, the stupidest people are the loudest. A lot of quiet people who are quietly looking after their neighbour. Um, and we have a lot to be hopeful for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of go that from a, like a, you know, my passion for adoption and fostering. And um, so part of me wants to hijack your conversation and say, not only do we have all of those things that you mentioned, but we also have big enough homes as well. And we have enough spare bedrooms. And again, I'm not saying that everybody, every Christian person or whatever has to adopt and foster, but I am very much aware I'm a wee bit like you. There's days where I don't feel as hopeful as I wish I could. But there's 178 extra kids that are in an already stretched care system in the in the in the course of the last year, and so that's going to like that just is going to impact. It's going to impact. I think it's going to impact your work. I think it's going to impact schools and communities and all of that. And and as you say, we have we have the 
the education, the time, the space, the room to be able to respond to that. And there's a part of me that and I know I'm really na- naive when it comes to this. Whenever I think of the amount of kids, two, 200, there was 250, that number is going to steadily increase. But that would require one family in every four or five churches, say, to say we can, we can do something, we can respond, we can offer a home and a family and somebody to to support and cheer on and print off homeworks and all of that. And I think there's times where I think that should not be difficult. And then there's other moments where I come away from conversations thinking, what's going nothing's ever going to change, you know? And I was really grateful for your for your blog because it was acknowledging that it, there is naivety, but there is still something about holding on to some f- form of hope, hope that is naive, but it's plowing on anyway, I think is what you said. Yeah. yeah there's, a, there's an author, David Foster Wallace. I don't know if you've heard or read much of him, um, but I was listening to this address. He, he did it, done, did, I can't speak. He, I, I'm preaching kids, but he gave um, at a university graduation, and they told this whole story about, um, about how if, Maybe um, they were finishing uni. He was like, "You're going off now into the real world. I want you to imagine that you have to get in your car and you have to get some food after a hard day at work before you go home, and you get stuck in traffic, and the person in front of you cuts in, and you're really annoyed, and you go to the the shop and you can't get a space, and you go in, and the music's awful, and there's somebody who's like child screaming, and then you go to the till, and the woman's really rude at the till. He was like, "You can just get really annoyed, but whenever you become an adult, you actually have to do that journey every single day." So he said, what if you imagine that the person who cut in in front of you is on the way to hospital to go and visit someone? What if you imagine that the woman who was really rude at the till is having an awful life at home? Her husband's horrible to her. And uh, and that's why she's like that. And then he said, because this is the part where it's hopeful naivety. He goes, probably not. They probably are just really rude. They probably are just really bad drivers. But if you're going to imagine and choose to believe a story, you might as well choose to believe one that is going to make you empathetic and passionate and, and uh, or graceful and gracious towards people rather than one that's going to be negative. So that's that's a really good depiction of that hopeful naivety, like informed naivety, where we're like, I know that's probably not true, but why am I going to get cross? I'm going to make up a story. I might as well make up a good one, um, which I thought was brilliant. That is good. It actually puts me in mind. I was, I've was i been doing this course. Uh, it's like a teen coaching course. It's called Pause. Uh, it's like a five-week five week course and uh, last week the U was for understanding and uh, the first straight out straight out of the out of the out of the blocks the guys quoted from a psychiatrist who says all behaviour makes sense and uh, and so he was just sort of alluding to the fact that sometimes you'll get like really difficult teenagers, you'll get teenagers whose behaviour is really bad, but actually for the majority of them they just feel really threatened. Like being in care, there's triggers that will just cause them to react in certain ways. And so it's just a wee bit of what you said. I've started to try to do that in my everyday life when I come up, when I rub up against like somebody who's not in good form or somebody that's acting out of character who or who is being rude, as you've said, and try to live something what you've said, all behavior makes sense. There's there's a behavior that is that's manifest because of what's going on within their situation or within their home life or whatever and it has i think for me like the practice of that has created not all the time you know you fight fire with fire but it has created 
a definitely an increased level of of empathy, be able to see people differently. I think. Um, really good, Mark. I love what you're doing with Aspire, and I know that I know that Cara. There's a, there's a separate team and all of that, but um, can you tell us a wee bit about about what that looks like on a daily basis, or what that's been like over over lockdown as well. Yeah, so uh, we decided at Cara when so Cara there's when it comes to like everyone always asks if you said how many people go to Cara, right? So it's weird because like I have a list of about ninety people on my phone, but they don't ever all go at once on a Sunday, like. They're, ne- they're never going to all turn up at one go. So on a Sunday, I'd say we get 30 people, but it's a different 30 people every week, right? Um, but we, when lockdown came, we just had this like emergency, like myself and Tim and Butters, this emergency, let's meet at the prayer room and come up with a plan. Um, and we run day groups. Um, so came from like Adam Cox. So we, we run, I don't want to just say they're like small groups because they're not just like small groups. The, the purpose of a day group is it's a discipleship group where you invite three or four other people to be in your group and you say to those people, I am going to give you my whole life. You are, so like I say to my four, I lead Cara apparently in, in a team, but I don't really have capacity to fully invest in four people and you are those four people. Um, so we just uh, ran our day groups online, which was the, it's called the DBS, like the Discipleship uh, Bible Study. So every week we just went online on day group during the first lockdown, um, and it was amazing. So my day group were for um, sort of young adults, and this is a weird thing. This was a this was a weird, hopeful, naivety thing that I realised was weird after I started doing day group. So I used to invite them to church right on a Sunday, and I hoped they came. Then I hoped that they listened. Then I hoped that they responded. Then I hoped that they would come and talk to me about it. Then I hoped they thought about it during the week, and then I hoped they came back the next week. That was a lot of hope. I put a lot of hope right there. First week of day group, I have these four young adults on a Zoom call, and I say, we're going to read Matthew chapter one, and I ask one of them to read it. I ask someone else to put it in their own words. I ask them, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about people? And how can I pray for you this week? And I didn't leave at the end anymore, hoping that they got something out of it. I left going, we read the Bible. We decided that it's it, this about God was not amazing. It said this about people. I never thought about that. And I'm going to pray for them this week. And then I was like, why was I ever relying on, on my uh, my sermon before to be the main point of teaching? Right. And then I thought, the only people that like 40-minute lectures are Christians and students. And then I thought, no, the only people that have to sit through them are Christians and students. So then it was hard work for the for the day group leaders though, um, doing that week in, week out. So this lockdown, we have been doing Cara Zoom. We've never done like online teaching, so we do a Cara Zoom. Um, and on the Zoom call, somebody new each week shares um, a bit about their what God's taught them the past year, um, what their dream is for Kurgavan and how we can best pray for them. I'm a prayer for them. So that's uh, that's our sort of main thing. And then we keep the day groups going. We, uh, you're not allowed to meet up and do anything else, but we... Uh, we do prayer walks on a Wednesday in twos because you're allowed to exercise with one other person. So we, we meet a car in the cars and then Tim tells us what estates we're going to and who we're going with. And we prayer walk the estates and we've just been trying to really pray and ask God, what is your dream for this estate? So that we can come back fired up, writing down what we feel God's saying, writing down the prophetic so we can act on that rather than just going, this is a bit of time off. We're going, no, God's actually probably preparing us 
for the next stage. So that's what's been happening at Cara. It doesn't sound like a lot. It's been very thinky. Like, I really like doing things, but it's been very thinky. And then I just remember that's okay because we have a lot of time to do a lot of thinking. And once we get together again, we'll have a lot of time for doing a lot of doing. Um, and it, it's meant to feel frustrating that we can't all be together. But um, it's pretty good. I love my group. They're my highlight of my week every week. Brilliant. That's really good. Um, you were sh- you were, when you were sharing there, I couldn't help but think there's a, two or three weeks ago we we were doing a podcast with a guy called Michael Briggs and he's uh, originally from Rich Hill and um, is now down in Dublin. And uh, and so I, part of me just imagines that whenever, whenever I imagine the, the, the work that Michael's doing and the place that he's doing it, I sometimes can't help but think of what you guys are doing in Craig Avon. And I'm, I have don't, I've no concrete evidence on that, but I just like, that's just what I sometimes think. But it, as you were talking there, Michael shared with us part of his chat through what, what not just what lockdown has looked like, but the, the, the culture that they try to create is that the talk, the sermon, or whatever it is that we call it, is not, it's not the main part. And in fact, it's that they're not even the answer. They're the start of the conversation is what he said. And, uh, and so I think that's what, it sounds to me that that's what you're doing. The talks are not the answer. They're just like, this is just the start of the conversation. And then we go on trying to live yeah. this out together as best we can. Yeah. So, so like my, the weeks where I learn and listen the most from a sermon is the week that I'm preaching, right? Not because I'm brilliant, but because I had to spend hours doing that. And yeah. it's almost like I short sell the room by giving them the bullet points from the hours I spent. But in the day group, we do the hour together. We do the pulling apart together. And then we all we all leave. We can give the bullet points. When Heather asks what we talk about, I can tell her. But it's amazing how we, like, we, we do. We almost like we go right deep in. We ask hard questions. And then we'll package that up nicely. Well, we don't package it that nicely. We deliver it over like a really long time. I used to preach really short sermons, about 20 minutes. And then it's just got longer and longer. The older I've got. And I need to knock that in the head. <laughs> to work harder to preach order. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But what I've realised, and I didn't realise this until lockdown. No, we're here to talk about you. But while I didn't realise this until lockdown, that because a couple of people had asked me, I went for a walk with a few people, and the chat came up around like, like how do you prepare for a talk and stuff like that. And like I'm rubbish. Like I don't have the concentration enough to sit and pour over study books for hours. I've never done that. I can easily, I say I've never been able to do that. It's probably just like being lazy that, that I've never, I've never bothered doing it. But my preferred way of learning has been, is just communicating with people. So like, got heading up to the pub and sitting around having conversations and being able to like work something out together. That's where I, I didn't realize how much of my, what I share on a Sunday comes from conversations with other people and being able to work that all out. And so I think that's where times I've like, I've found most difficult, like so much of my energy and like how I think and how then that is then played out is so reliant on those like conversations with other people, you know? Yeah. Like every time that I'm preaching, I'm so aware that at least five different people in the room know a large chunk of what I'm about to say. I've already said it to them or brought it out to them or read uh-huh. them. Or even if I'm doing what I think is an absolutely brilliant joke in the middle, I can't mm-hmm. keep it to the Sunday. I'll phone someone and go, what do you think if I said this? 
So everyone's only hearing it a little bit for the first time because I've already phoned them midweek and went, you ever read about this? You ever thought about this? Or what about this? This is mine. Um, heard this. That's so good. I don't do, I don't do jokes. Maybe I should start doing, throwing some jokes into the middle. Yeah. You don't do them. You don't do them like whenever you're gathered with people physically because you're just aware of that awkward silence. But you have that awkward silence over Zoom anyway, so you might as well. Yeah, we, you might we as well just walk away. Every week, I can call good news stories. Mm-hmm. When we were all together, highlight in the week. So, Huber uh, Sosen says, we're just going to share our good news stories and somebody can share about a healing or somebody will share about getting um, an extra shift in work or some young person will share about like having a really nice nap in it. Mm-hmm. And we, yeah. we all clap and cheer and celebrate that person's story. There's nothing worse than on Zoom. We're all on mute. And somebody could tell you that like they saw someone rise from the dead the other day, but we're all mute. So there's, there's absolutely no reaction apart from people going. <laughs> and it's just always feels anticlimactic. You're just like, no matter what we say here, there's no reaction. Sometimes people do the wee clapping thing in the corner. <laughs> but on the whole, um, yeah, awful, awful response. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, like, we'll, we'll, take another, we'll take another 10, 15 minutes here. Uh, I know there was, uh, you've, you've, you've started me down a bit of a rabbit hole over the last couple of weeks with this notion of uh, metamodernism. Is there, like, how, is there something that, like, you can relate to what's going on now that, like, give us an idea of what that, what yeah. that is? So metamodernism is my favorite thing right now to look at. So it's it's an aesthetic, right? Is probably the best way to describe it. Uh-huh. So, uh, like, it, it's it's a it's a better name for post postmodernism than that because that's too many posts. And it may just sound like I have a stutter, and especially on Zoom, you may just feel that there was a glitch. Um, so it's what comes next after postmodernism. But um, from I started reading about it, so it's not a philosophy. It's not good or bad. It's just what is at the minute. It's an aesthetic of what's going on, um, and it, this whole idea of a new sincerity, but. From I've been reading about it, I see it everywhere. Um, and then there hasn't so um, it's the, the word meta is talking about an oscillation, like a movement between um modernism and postmodernism. So uh informed naivety that we talked about earlier on is very meta-modern because you are fully aware. So like you're you're fully aware, like the postmodernists, that loads of people in church are lazy, they're not gonna do anything about it. I can't be bothered with them. You know that like uh, ironic postmodern distance from thing, from people idea. You, you carry on that, but you're also then swinging back to modernism of going. I think we can change the world, and you you have both of these. Where you go, we're really lazy, but we're going to try and change the world. Um, but it's it's interesting how that outplays itself in belief, because you, the church, especially right, Northern Ireland, is very we're very like twenty years behind all the time, right? So we're just starting to talk about postmodernism now. And it, it probably stopped being the main thing, the main aesthetic, about 20 years ago. Donald Trump, right, whether you love him or hate him, is the end of postmodernism. He's where it ends. He's not, this isn't this new thing, right? Um, that's where, like, not having truth and all ends up. But we're not returning now. So this is where it gets interesting for churches. We're not returning to... Um, blind belief in things, you know, like your sort of your, your parents and grandparents might have. I just believe that. We now have this uh, this meta idea where sorry this sounds quite complicated, but I find it really interesting. 
where do you know if you were like a modernist you could be going god made the world in seven days it says it in genesis and that's true and i believe it and i'm not gonna ask any questions you're a modernist you believe this is what it says um and there's probably science that's going to show it that's what we're, we're probably a science we'll look for it we'll look for the science we'll look for the evidence then the postmodernists come along and they're going that's so silly like that didn't happen. Let's really look at the science. And if that's silly, what else is silly? What does it even mean to believe? And they pull everything apart. But the metamodernists that are able to oscillate between the two are able to go, yeah, I believe God made everything. Did he, did he make it in seven days? Don't know. I just choose to believe that. Just like we're choosing to believe that someone's going through a hard time so we can be nice. You can choose to believe something even if you don't believe it. That sounds complicated, but it's actually a good thing. So, um, I don't know if there's any children listening right now, but this bit might not make any sense to them. But I could say to Neil on Christmas, well, did the big man come? And he'd say he did. I'd go, oh, you were good then? He'd go, oh, was. We believe in that conversation, even though we don't believe, because we choose, we, we have to pick a story, because postmodernism has made us uh, cynical, and we don't have a story, and we don't believe anything, and we get polarised and pulled into two different sides. So, but then... The only caveat, I'll stop talking about metamodernism in a second, I'm just obsessed with it. The only caveat to that is that sounds really good then. It sounds like, oh, I love metamodernism. But a really metamodern idea is a conspiracy theory because it creates a hope. It creates this story to believe in, even if you don't believe it. And it can lead you to some very dangerous places. because you can, And then you can go, how do these people believe this mental stuff? Well, they're choosing to believe something because it gives them some hope, even if that hope is found somewhere really dangerous. Well, it can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing, but it definitely feels like this new sincerity is better than uh, is better than cynicism. Also, last thing, sorry, I'll say about this, and then I'll stop talking about it, is that's, I find loads of young people are really willing to um, explore faith and get involved in church, right? And we can go, but these young people are all postmodern. They don't even know what they believe. They're not. They're metamodern, right? The 40, 50-year-old in your church who doesn't want to get involved because when he went to school, he went when I went to school, when you guys went to school, remember it wasn't cool to care and it wasn't cool to try. <laughs> the postmodernists are now 40, 50. It's the 40, 50-year-olds are not willing to get involved at times because it's not cool to care and it's not cool to try. That's no longer actually what it is like to be a young person. Young people, it is like, it's weird you go in school. It's cool. Like, I don't know if you've seen 21 Jump in the film when the, and Channing Tatum goes back to school and he can't believe the cool kids are wearing their school bags and both shoulders. That they care about uh, science and they're really into uh, the environment, but that's uh, that's what it's like. So anyway, sorry that was a bit of a caveat, but how it applies to church is very interesting and ongoing, and I'm following it. And if you have anything to say about that, but church, just are you too, like maybe 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 that's too big a risk to say that something while you're still working it out. Just, just I think there is we're not always talking about the same things yet. So when, when someone who's been brought up in school post-2000 says they believe something, it doesn't mean the same thing that you think it means. But also, um, postmodernists, like people who are older, aren't bad either, because metamodernism isn't better. It's just a different aesthetic. But we need to find a language that can speak to all of these people as well. Um, and metamodernism is really good at, speak, like, at speaking to everyone, because you can be ironic and cynical while being hopeful. Does that make sense? Like you can use irony and cynicism to say a really positive thing. So one thing that I find interesting about church is uh, we always lie about events, right? 
you run an event and it's right, say drop in or grace, whatever whatever hat you have on that day, runs an event, it's rubbish. Nobody comes. You run an event for the community, 10 people turn it was rubbish. You get up on the Sunday and you go, it was amazing yesterday. We had a really amazing day. You know, maybe we didn't get the numbers we wanted, but it was just good to be together. It was just so good. It wasn't amazing, it was rubbish. That's not what you set out to do at all. The met the meta modern approach to that is to be cynical and ironic in, in a way by going, We threw a day yesterday, it was rubbish, and have a laugh at yourself, but then go, But wasn't it good to do that? We're gonna talk about what can make it better and we're gonna try again. You see, you can you can laugh at yourself, you can be ironic and cynical, but also then it ends with hope. So I, I talked to Neil a bit about like you see this in like Parks and Recreation, the TV show. Is what yeah, yeah. For the same modern family, um, but we now we now learn to. Uh, if you watch like lots of these new TV shows and films, the characters who would have been losers are now the heroes. Setting out to do like, and it's weird. You're watching like some nerd trying to achieve something, and they're the hero of the story. We're no longer laughing at them. We are cheering them on and supporting them, and that's a very but but still also aware that they're a loser. So there's a bit of cynicism um that right this definitely last thing i'll say about it like I'm really interesting is my best example of it is uh if, if you watch parks and recreation right leslie nopes is a meta modern feminist icon right and this is meta modernism laid out right so if you think about modernity and you think about femininity right women were weak they cooked and they cleaned they liked pink and they wanted a man to save them right then post-modernity comes along and goes rips that up right and goes, no, we are feminists. We are strong women. We stand up for ourselves. We don't need a man. We can have our own career, right? You look at Leslie Nope, how she oscillates, and she's a character in Parker Recreation, if you don't know, how she oscillates between the two. She loves, she's like obsessed with her uh, boyfriend who then becomes husband. Don't want to spoil what happens as the series goes on. She is obsessed with her best friend and making her gifts and presents and is so girly. But she is a career-driven woman who is powerful and leads a team of people. She's able to oscillate between two things at one time. She's a meta-modern feminist icon. That same thinking and being two things at once is going to spread out into church, into education, into music, into everything that you do. So just watch out, be aware. I don't know how it'll affect church, but I know that it will. And I know there's a little harking on about postmodernism, which probably ended around 9-11 we're going to be left behind. Yeah. And I like, and I'm aware some people might have been able to follow that. I'm still like, I'm still like in that place where I'm getting my head around what this means. And I have been fascinated by it. And I really wanted to give you a few minutes just to like, to, to unpack it a bit further. I found it really helpful. I suppose like I, what I've picked up some like really simple ideas of it is like the postmodern, uh, to a postmodernist, every situation is either or. Is that fair to say? But for like for 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 the meta modern, it's like it's collapsing all of those distances. It's a sincere and total. Well, I think that's in one of the articles that you sent me. It's a it's a total collapse of all of those distances, which part of which part of me thinks that's true. Like some of us want to stay in that, in that blind optimism, I think you quoted this in your blog, that refuses to deal with nuance and questions. And I think the church has been poor at that, if I'm being honest. Like, almost like blindly refusing to deal with all the nuances and all of the questions. And I think we, can know, we, we can't do that anymore. 
I don't think we'll be able to get away with that any any longer. And the 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 challenge of it is, it's going to take a risk. And so, as again, as I've looked at some, like whether it's in the it's in movies or with artists, it's going to take a risk to the artist's reputation, isn't it? Yeah. And that then for church, we have to be willing to admit when things went wrong, not just an event went wrong, but where there was abuse or where there was bad teaching or where there was this, that or the other. You can't just ignore those things and move on. You can't go uh, hopeful. I really like this idea of sincerity and hope. Let's just do that, but ignore what we've done, what we've propagated, everything else. Um, especially like even the a lot of what we talked about about our young people and how they came to be in the situation they're in and their poverty and people believing bad things about them. A lot of that has been supported, propagated, and encouraged by the church in our obsession with business and business is bad and uh, handing stuff out is good and uh, like you know somebody comes looking for help and we have a series of hoops for them to jump through until we find out if they're worthy of our help or not. Like a lot of a lot of the reason that people are cynical and wondering if this person really needs help or not is because we've taught them that. It's been a bizarre thing that's been taught and upheld. And like I've been to so many Christian conferences and um they address church people. So like, you know, maybe you're a pastor or a leader. And if you're not, they go, or maybe you're a businessman. I mean what what what? What's the obsession with business? What's the obsession with, with money? What's the obsession with people? Um, and we've got a lot. Before we can be hopeful and, and change things, we need to admit that we were part of this stuff. And, and so I'll finish with this because I could go on. I, could, I think I could chat to you ages about this. But again, t- touching on that risk because I think the risk of metamodernism is being misunderstood and it's actually the risk of disapproval but then for me what i bring it up because you've just touched on money it's we actually we talk of risk sometimes we manage to talk of risk in the church but we avoid the social cost and so i think that's most clearly seen in how we set our table for the sake of using the metaphor how we set our table we set our table for the 80 percent. we set our table for the good tithers the anointed the, the most gifted, the well-polished preachers. We set our table for them in whatever room's left at the end. I was able, I, I kind of been reading Luke 14, it feels like I've been just thinking about that so often, about what Jesus said, was that he's just completely completely twisted, turned around what, what setting the table looks like. Like he says, go out to those that are poor and oppressed and are struggling or finding things difficult, set the table for them for those that can't pay you back and then if there's room at the table after that go out and get those other ones in, you know what I mean? Yeah, whenever we do things to, because we have to for like when we, when we know that we need to poor people at the table they're, the poor people become a real burden to us and we become, they know that they are as well, so I had this friend who I was going out with for coffee um, every week and um, he was he was just a bit strange right? let's say that and he said to me do you go out with me once a week is your good deed of the week and it was burning me out hanging out with him and it was annoying him that he thought that I wasn't really his friend so we have to truly if we want to like the the, the, the poor the downtrodden the whatever else if we're not willing to really become their friend and really invest and have them in our lives then we hurt them and then that reminds me of when Jesus said 
um, like you, you fed me and you visited me in prison. And then they say to him, when did we do that? It's because we enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It's because they're actually our mate. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Whereas yeah. if you hate hanging out with someone because they smell bad, but you do it every week because it's a good Christian duty. When Jesus mm-hmm. says, you looked after me, you go, you're right at it every Thursday at eight. But <laughs> people really need a friend. Very good. That's really good, Mark. Thanks. Um, I, I think we're we're at the wrapping up stage here. Um, so, uh, founder Paul, if anything they want to add here, there's always one final question I want to finish with. I never prepped you for this, Mark. Sorry, right. I really enjoyed myself. Oh, yeah. in my leg, but apart from that, I've had a good time. Um, so guys, have nothing else. The the big question before we finish is: the good thing is you're going to have lots of options here because you've been watching loads of TV. For the people listening, what what have you been watching, reading, or listening that uh, that we have to get ourselves involved in? Um, yeah, oh, you panic at this question because you go like, I'm so immune. To like bad language, on TV. <laughs> I'm gonna recommend something, or someone's gonna go. I can't believe he said to watch that. Like when I told my granny she should watch Gavin and Stacey, she shouldn't have. Um, she didn't. Thankfully, my mum said it backwards. Why do you recommend that? Um, uh, Master of None on Netflix. Okay. With Aziz and Zari from Parks and Recreation. Uh-huh. There is some beautiful episodes. It's funny. But there are some beautiful episodes about family and about background and about everything else that is both funny and touching and everything all at once. Um, so that is what you should be watching. Um, okay. Reading, if you're into like church stuff, right? Which mm-hmm. I'm assuming you are, if you're on this. This here book, I'm working through this with Tim and Butters, is one of the best things we've read, Unraveled. Okay. Um, Reform the Church, Transform the Culture by John Peterson. Sounds a bit communist, but it's good. Um, and... Yeah, if you want to listen to something, just listen to Robbie Williams' greatest hits. It'll get you three. <laughs> Good. I wasn't expecting that. Good. Any any closing remarks, Mark? Anything that's thanks for having me on. Every yeah, day. Don't, honestly, I've you know this. I uh, in case I don't tell you enough, I I would like to think when it comes to the list of your biggest fans, I'd like to think I'm up near the top and. Uh, so it's been a joy and a privilege to be able to spend this hour with you. Uh, I, found, I found it really helpful and I hope everybody else has enjoyed it and found it helpful as well. So, it's uh, so good. I haven't thought about the city score once and I don't know what it is. Oh, really? I, for, I forgot they were even playing. Thank you, though. Good man. Thanks, Mark. We'll chat soon. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. Griffin and Paul Woods. Head over to ordinarypodcast.com for show notes, links, previous episodes, and all the ways you can contact the show. See you next time.